Good morning, everyone. Well, as you've probably noticed already, I'm not the Pastor Dan. The Pastor Dan texted me about 5.15 this morning and said, he called into the bullpen and said, you're up. <laughs> so if you're in a praying mood, pray for our pastor today. He's just under the weather like everybody else is. He'll be fine. It's just one of those days for him. So if you're new to our church, welcome, and you don't have to put up with me every Sunday. How's that sound? And by the end of this, you'll know that's a good thing. So anyway, welcome to church this morning. Glad you guys are here. Um, can we pray real quick before we get started, just to kind of quiet my heart? Thank you. Father in heaven, <clears throat> you're good, Lord, and we're grateful to just have an opportunity to gather together this morning, including myself, to talk about the one true living God, to talk about the one we just sang about, to talk about the one who gave everything for us. So I pray, Lord, this morning that we're willing to give everything that we are back to him. Starting this new year, like we talked about last year, Lord, or last week, Lord, we just need to Keep our eyes exactly like we just sang, Lord. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Jesus, to you this morning, I pray that everyone in this congregation and maybe watching online would do that, including myself. Turn our eyes to you. Turn our eyes to you because you know what we need the most. So help us this morning, Lord, to hear from you. Give us ears to hear what it is that your word would have to teach to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So with all that said, I've kind of blended a little bit of a message here this morning. So if you're in the high school room regularly, I apologize ahead of time. You're going to hear some of this will be familiar for you, and some of it may be new as well. But there's a lot of times in the, in the high school room when I get an opportunity to do a message that I look forward to having the opportunity to bring it on a Sunday morning to the congregation, because here's what I believe Tanner does in the junior high room and what I do in the high school room. We don't minister to students like they're students. I'll be very honest with you. We minister to them like they're adults. Because I had a young man sitting in a sanctuary here this morning, uh, over here on this side. He made a comment a couple years ago on a missions trip. I've always been a little bit concerned about that with me, because I do talk to them. I remember being in a junior high room, talking to them very directly. And I used to say, if parents knew how we talked to their kids in the junior high room, they'd probably freak out a little bit. Not in a vulgar way, but in a very honest, very abrupt, in-your-face, as a young adult way. And I had a young man on a missions trip tell me, I said, I've always tried to talk to you guys as though you're adults. And he said this to me, and I think he was a, probably a sophomore at that time. He says, well, Dan, he says, the devil doesn't talk to us like we're kids. And that struck me, and I'm like, that's exactly right. So this morning, as I bring something from the high school room, part of that into here this morning, I pray that you hear my heart. But I want you to know, you guys, I want you to really realize, as an adult Sunday morning congregation, our youth groups in this church teach the Bible. We may not be the funnest youth groups around, but we teach the Word of God in a way that I think is effective, honoring to God, honoring to Pastor Dan, honoring to our church, the parents, and we lift kids up. So what you're going to hear this morning is kind of how I talk to them on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night in the high school room. So bear with me a little bit. Hopefully this all kind of come together and make some sense what God had me throw together this morning. I'm just thinking about what I wanted to talk to you guys about. So I remember back in 2020, because we're just seven days into the new year this morning, right? So happy new year if you weren't here last Sunday. 2020 happened. The pandemic, the plandemic, whatever you want to call it, right? And everybody was so excited for 2020 to be over with. Couldn't hardly wait for 20. Remember? Am I the only one? Amen. We were all like, couldn't wait for 2020 to be over with. But I told Rachel, I was sitting there probably toward the end of December, I said, you know what, my heart really breaks for people this year. Because everybody was waiting for that year to end, thinking when the calendar rolled over, everything was going to be fine. And it wasn't. We still live in a fallen world, don't we? Around fallen people who have a free will, like I talked about last week, 
But those who follow Jesus do well with that, right? But it struck me that when 2020 rolled into 2021, people were so discouraged. They'd lost hope. They've given up. They had given up. And I think a lot of people, even in 2023, we're looking into 2024, an election year, all the nonsense that's going to go on with that. And we're going to try to cling to this thing called hope. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about this morning is hope, but not a hope so hope. Not something that we just hope the we- I hope it doesn't snow tomorrow. I hope it doesn't get to be 10 below on Thursday night here in town, right? So I'm hoping for things. But I don't want it to be a hope so wishful thinking hope that we're talking about this morning. I really want this to be a biblical hope that we have going into today. Not even the new year, you guys. We know, we, it, like Pastor Dan has taught me, the scripture says, who knows what a day brings forth. Amen. We don't know what this afternoon is going to be like, and we got to have hope that what we just sang about this morning with the one who gave his life on a cross, buried in a tomb, raised from the grave three days later, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, we got to hope that that's true, don't we? But how do we do that? How can I have assurance that what I read in Scripture is true? I had a lady sit in my office earlier this week, same thing. She says, well, man wrote that. Yeah, men penned it, inspired by God. And I want to look at that this morning. I want to give a couple of things because what, in, what kind of kicked this whole idea off in the high school room and in here this morning is you listen to the radio. Today's world, there's more despair, more loneliness, more depression, more suicide. And we're supposed to be a connected society because of social media. And you see all these things that are going wrong in the world. And it struck me that everything, here's what happens though. On a scale, if you weight the scale, if we just look at a scale for a second, if you take this scale and you start to take God out of culture, out of society, you kick God to the curb, he's no longer in the schools, we can't have him in the government buildings anymore, whatever that is, once that scale may be evened out and God starts to lighten up, the weight of the world starts coming in. And here's what I promise you that you're seeing. You're seeing the hope of God being taken out of society and you're watching the depravity of a human heart being put in. There's never going to be a void. So when you look at that, that's why that scale, why depression's up, cutting's up, alcoholism's up, drug use is up, all the stuff that we hear about that is so discouraging, but yet so true. Why is that? I believe we've lost hope, not in this room so much, but as a society, as a culture and as a whole. That doesn't mean we have to partake in it. That doesn't mean that we have, to, we have to live in that world. We can be in the world, but not of the world. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. But I want to bring something, bring a thought to you guys is, how do we know that I can trust the scripture? And I'm only going to cover one thing briefly this morning, and I'll get into the rest of the message here in just a few minutes. Because people need God. The world need. would you all agree that the world needs a little hope? Yeah. But not, I hope, I gosh, I wish it would be better, hope. Hope in the Bible are promises. God keeps his promises. That's the hope of a Christian. I heard Adrian Rogers say this a long time ago. He's been in heaven probably for over a decade. Wonderful preacher. Talked about him before the voice. Every preacher wished they had was Adrian Rogers. But he talked about biblical hope is promises that God makes to us and promises that God keeps to us. In Hebrews 11.1, it says, now faith, because faith is the substance to hope and hope must be grounded in faith. Faith is the confidence in which we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. 
Faith and hope work together in that. So if we have faith, we got to have hope. Biblical hope, i got a couple of quotes I'll share with you guys that I came across. Biblical hope is this. The expectation that all God's promises to us and for us will soon be realized. We just sang, he's coming back. Do you guys believe that? He came, we just got done with Advent, didn't we? The arrival of the child, but he's coming back. See, that's a promise that God made and a promise that God's going to keep. So we got to make sure that we're hanging on understanding this biblical hope. Biblical hope is waiting, is trusting and waiting for God to fulfill his promises. With God, there's hope, not optimism, not wishful thinking. It's absolute hope. How do we know this? And I believe one place that I talk to people all the time about the assurance I find in the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. Predicted prophecy in scripture is where we can hang our hat that we see God making promises and we also see God keeping promises. And he may not have fulfilled all of his promises yet, but he has filled enough, fulfilled enough that we know it's true. Let me ask you a question. Just from a perspective, because I know not everybody in here is all sold out like I am on the Bible being accurate and true and we can trust it, okay? <clears throat> so some of you may have questions. How many prophecies would God, how many promises, prophecies, how many promises would God have to make and keep for it to be enough that you would go, I'm in, I trust the, I trust the word. It's trustworthy, I know it is, and I'm done questioning it. Even if I don't understand it when I read it, even my life isn't going the way I want it to, I'm going to trust this thing we call the Bible. Fulfilled prophecies where we find that. Here's a couple examples. Jesus said, in, in, Jesus said the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, Matthew 24, 2. Do you realize that happened in 70 AD, 40 years after his death? How many fulfilled prophecies, how many promises did God make and keep do you have to have before you'll go, I believe the word? This is important because I'm going somewhere with this. Another one is Isaiah wrote that uh, we just got done with Christmas. Isaiah wrote about Jesus being born as a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6. You guys, you know this, but I'm going to remind you. Nine or 700 plus years before Christ was born, that was written. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says how the Messiah will be born where? Not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. How many prophecies, how many promises does God have to make and keep for you to wrap your arms around this truth that I can have hope in Scripture? I find my hope in the Bible. Another one is this. <clears throat> David wrote, a thousand years before crucifixion was ever a thing, David wrote about crucifixion. Now, to this person that asked me this week, yeah, but didn't man write that? Okay, so think about Isaiah. Why would Isaiah write about a child being born to a virgin. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Why would David write about something a thousand years before it was a thing? Why would he write that? Because God inspired him to pin that for us as a record that God keeps, makes his promises and he keeps them that way. Another one is this, um, uh, Psalm twenty two sixteen, which is another messianic prophecy. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has closed in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. How many, how many promises does God have to make and keep for you to go, I can trust this word? And the reason why I keep driving that in is I'm going somewhere. Where I want you to know that you can find hope in Scripture. Not just in the songs we sing. Not just when things are going well, but biblical hope that God keeps his promises. I got my Bible marked this morning, Isaiah 53. You guys are all going to know this. This is such a critical part of this, a messianic prophecy. Seven to 800 years before it ever happened, 
This was written, I've read this often to people and they'll go, well, where's that in the New Testament? I don't remember reading that. This is not in the New Testament. This is in the Old Testament. And it says this in Isaiah 53, 4. I'll shorten up the section. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was on us or was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned away from our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Promises made and kept. God does it all the time through Scripture. So the promises he's not yet kept and fulfilled, he will. Predictive, script, predictive prophecy is something that no other religion on the planet can talk about. No other religion has the guts, if you will, to predict, watch God predict something and then fulfill it when he said he was going to predict it. So when we look at these things, that's what I want you guys to realize. Biblical hope allows us to see our lives in a situation from a different perspective. Turn our eyes on Jesus. You guys all know this. I'm just reminding you of the things you already know. When we turn our eyes <clears throat> off of our own stuff onto him, what happens? Our perspective changes, doesn't it? But when we're so self-consumed and so self-absorbed into everything that we're going through, it's hard to do that. But we got to remember the Holy Spirit of God is faithful to tap me on the chin and say, Dan, look up. Turn your eyes to Jesus. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Everything changes when we turn our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because there we find our hope. This next year, we're not going to, I don't know what's going to happen. Like I talked about last week, Rachel and I often pray this prayer. We don't know what's going to happen today, Lord, but I know who I follow. And you're good. And even if I don't appreciate or, 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 or like what I'm going through that day, I know you're good. I've got to make the choice that he's good. Why? Because this word tells me he is. And he's a God that keeps his promises. And that promise is he'll never leave me and he will never forsake me. He will never go anywhere. He's right there with me. Jesus tells us we're going to have trials and tribulations, right? What's he say though? Take heart. Why? Because I've overcome. If we're in him, we have victory. We, have, we can overcome things in our lives in the midst of struggles and trials. So it helps us change our perspective. But if we're not careful, we get stuck in our circumstance rather than in Christ. And when we get stuck in our circumstance, I believe we lose sight of the biblical hope that this gives us. Even though many of our circumstances don't change, like I've talked about, we know Christ is the same no matter what. With God, there's hope. With God, there is hope. With God, there is hope. Why? Because he's with me. He strengthens me. I got the power of his Holy Spirit that lives in my heart. There's nothing I can't get through to his glory. And I might be crawling on my hands and knees at times, but I've got my eyes fixed on him. So with that, what I want to do is I want to take a minute. And I'm praying like crazy God helps me this morning. And I want to step off into a very tender subject. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know everything. But I know the one who does know everything. There's been a lot of people that have talked about suicide in our community. And it's a very hot topic in our community because it happens all the time. 
And this is something that these teenagers deal with regularly. And it's something parents deal with regularly. Think about this. If teenagers deal with it regularly, who else deals with it regularly? Parents. I have had the opportunity as a junior high volunteer for 12 years in this church and the last 10 years of working on staff in this church as a high school pastor. I've had many opportunities to go by parents' house when their kids are upstairs in the room, parents will call me. They say, Dan, I'm afraid my kid's going to take their life. So they go off and they go up into the room and they hide. And you have parents parenting from a perspective of fear. And it's terrible because if I discipline my kid in today's society, the answer is, I'm going to kill myself. How many times, how many parents, everybody in this room has experienced this firsthand. You guys all work with someone who's had this conversation in their home, if not another friend, not far away from that in a conversation. So what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about suicide for just a couple of minutes. We have, assist, we have assisted suicide. Now you know why I want to hang on to that idea of hope, okay? We have assisted suicide, which I totally disagree with. That's Dr. Kevorkian days back a few years back. And I want to say this real quick too. From a secular perspective, there's a lot of people doing a lot of really good things in regards to keeping people from suicide. They are. I can't argue with them. One of the couple things I would share with you guys this morning before I get into the rest of this is, if you know someone who is thinking about suicide, here's some things that I've learned from the secular side of things when I've done training through my job that I used to have and all these kind of different things. A couple things I would tell you to ask them is, well, tell me, are you just thinking about it or do you have a plan? Because if they have a plan, it's more than just a thought that races through their brain. And if they have a plan, ask them, okay, how would, if you did that, how would you do it? Pills, guns, whatever that is, um, then you help them eliminate that, that, that opportunity because statistics would show whatever their plan is, they're going to stick with that. And they won't change that plan. So if they can't get to what they're going to use, that will get them through the moment of thinking they need to end their lives. So there's a lot of very good work being done out there, okay? So I think another way to do this is slow suicide. Alcohol, drugs, Whatever that is, people are slowly numbing themselves and slowly killing themselves by the way they live their life. I grew up that way. I know that exactly what that looks like. I've had loved ones who have attempted suicide and have succeeded at it. So everybody's gone through this. We've had high school students in our own youth groups at times that have, through this church over the years have committed suicide. And I'll get into that in just a second. But when you think about all these different things that we can look at from a suicide perspective... I want to make sure I'm clear on this, that if a person has a mental challenge, then they, they get themselves in this spot. God's a good judge. He's gonna, he'll take those things into consideration. But for just your everyday person, for a boy or a girl or a person who's just had a hard time, maybe an experience they've had where they step off into eternity and it's not time for them, I don't know what they do. If you're not saved, that's an easy discussion. But what I got into with the high school students was this. <clears throat> I thought, okay, let me, ask, let me ask these guys the hardest question when it comes to suicide. Because we all read it, don't we, when we read the obituaries in the paper. They smiled all the time. They laughed all the time. They loved God. They were a good Christian. And it breaks my heart to hear that because they've taken their hope and put it somewhere else. So here's the, here's the question I pose to high schoolers that I want to look at and see if I can direct us back to Scripture and give us some guidance through this morning, okay? If a Christian kills themselves, do they go to heaven? If a Christian kills themselves, do they go to heaven? I studied this and watched a ton of videos because that's how these kids are learning. I watched a ton of videos and it broke my heart because every single video or every article I read said, yes, you do go to heaven. 
Hands down, no questions. You go to heaven. See, they're coming at this from a doctrinal stance. Our pastor stands at this pulpit every Sunday just about and beats his hand on here. And if you don't agree with my doctrinal stance, I'm going to say, give me grace, give me time, let me explain myself. Because that's a once saved, always saved perspective. Because once I'm saved, no matter what, I'm good to go. So you shouldn't do what they'll tell you. You shouldn't take your own life. But if you do, you're going to heaven, hands down. See, I don't believe that. I don't believe in a once saved, always saved doctrine. I believe that you can walk away from your faith. I have a free will, and my relationship with Jesus does matter, and it is a relationship that I can choose to walk away from, and I can leave the side of the Lord, and I can go a different direction. I can fall away, if you will. So I told the students when I talked to them, I'll tell you this this morning, so how do we, we have no, we have no peg to hang our hats on confidently that we can answer this question. So here's what I do with the high schoolers and I want to do with you guys this morning. I want to go back into scripture and look at this from a biblical perspective. What does the Bible actually tell us then? Because the word suicide isn't even in scripture. Suicide literally means self-death. That's the definition of it. So when you look at scripture, it doesn't really say, it doesn't give us dogmatic statements in scripture. But what does the Bible say to me that I can, I can build a peg to hang my hat on? And I believe a couple things are this. Uh, Ten commandments, you look at those. Commandment number six, everybody knows that is what? Thou shalt not murder. A murder, when you look at the Hebrew, it talks about this, how in the Hebrew it is usually a premeditated or a deliberate act. That's murder. It's self-murder, a suicide. Here's what I believe suicide becomes. You become so self-absorbed with what you're experiencing right at that moment that we forget to put our eyes on Jesus. So it's a self-absorbed experience. It's something, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an eternal decision based on a temporary situation. You're making an eternal decision based on a temporary situation. Do you guys know that this day is going to end and tomorrow's going to come short of the Lord returning? So whatever you're going through today, whatever moment that is, and you guys, I know I say this a lot, and I know Rachel's probably the only one that really understands it. The high schoolers probably know it more than anybody. I have been in very dark spots in my life as a Christian. I've been in very hard situations, not questioning God, but just the world just kicking the crud out of me at times. And I know I'm not the only one in here. You guys have been in the same place where you're sitting there in a moment, and you're like, I don't even know what to do. There's no hope. It seems like everything's lost. But there's hope. When I turn my eyes on Jesus, then I get myself from being self-absorbed in everything I'm going through, and I put my eyes back on him. So the very first thing the Bible does tell me is, thou shalt not murder. Suicide is self-murder. So that's number one. The second thing is this. You're not your own. Have you been brought with a price? Are you saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? Then you're not your own. It's not mine to take. It's his now. I belong to him. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Everything I am and everything about me belongs to God now. So how can I reach out and take my own life when it doesn't belong to me? Scripture makes it very clear. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, nine, or, uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, do you not know your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now think about that. 
I can't say, remember the, the, the earlier part of the conversation, if a Christian takes their life, we can't hang our hat on that for sure because the scripture doesn't make that clear, but it's making these other things clear, isn't it? You have to honor God with your body. And if you get yourself in a situation where you take your own life, you got to ask yourself, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 35, everything I do and whatever, what I eat or what I drink, I do it what? To the glory of God. If I'm supposed to honor God with my body when I reach out and take my own life, is that honoring God? I don't think it is. So when we look at the dogmatic part of scripture, we know here, those in the Bible that have taken their own life. There's a few, two I'll talk about this morning, actually three, King Saul and his armor bearer. And 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses one through six, King Saul got himself in a bad spot, got wounded, and he told his armor bearer, stab me, run me through, kill me, because if the Philistines get a hold of me, they're gonna, they're gonna do horrible things to me. So take my life, and his armor bearer's like, no, I can't do that. So what did Saul do? He fell on his own sword. Then the armor bearer saw Saul do that, so he did the same thing. You gotta ask yourself, if you go back and you read scripture, you know that Saul was not walking well with God at this time. He was struggling. He'd been apart from him. So when you look at Saul, he's someone that is apart from God, and his armor bearer would have been the same way. You guys know where I'll pick the second person in the New Testament is Judas. We all know where Judas was at. He betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. When he found out that didn't go right, he went back to the Israelites, that he, that, to the chief priests, and said, I have, I have betrayed innocent blood, right? So he said, here, you take the money. They took the money. Potter's field. You guys know the story. What did Judas do? He didn't go back to Jesus, did he? He didn't go back and ask for forgiveness. He didn't go back and seek the Lord. When you do something wrong and you screw up in your life, I want you to know to repent and go back to God. Don't just have remorse like Judas did and feel bad for what you did because Judas ended up what? Hanging himself. So when you look at scripture, we have a couple of scriptures that we can hang on to. Don't murder yourself. I don't belong to me. You find people in the Bible who have taken their own life they're not walking well with God. They don't have their eyes on Jesus. They have their eyes on themselves being self-absorbed. The apostle Paul says it this way, we despaired on to death. You think about the apostle Paul's life. I talked a little bit about that last week. Shipwrecked, beaten, abandoned, tortured. I mean, this guy went through, jailed. He went through all kinds of torture. And he says, while we were traveling around, we despaired on to death. In other words, there was, they thought all was lost. But why didn't they reach out and take their own lives? Because he had hope in Christ. So you've got to make sure you're hanging on to that idea of hope in Christ. Because he did not do that. We look at people in the Bible who asked God to take their own life. Most of you know who they are. Elijah, Jonah, Moses. Lord, I can't take it anymore. I can't do this anymore. Take my life. God does not honor that decision. He did not honor that decision. You know what he did with them? Watch, you guys, this is such a critical thing. When we think about being so self-absorbed, Lord, I can't take it anymore. End this for me, please. God gave him some rest, gave him something to eat, picked him up, brushed him off, and put him back to work. What was the important part about putting him back to work? They got their eyes off themselves, and they got him back on other people and upon the Lord. And that got their eyes off their own circumstance and situation. So when you look at the Bible, God did not honor the request of them to take their, to take their lives. And as I kind of close this off a little bit, here's the last part of this. And I'll kind of close in just a few minutes. <clears throat> I believe when you look at this, him not taking their own life is because God numbers our days. This is not a dogmatic statement, but God, it, Job even says that the God knows the number of my days. 
God has foreknowledge, you guys. He's God. He has foreknowledge of when it's going to be my time to step off into eternity. And I've heard people say, this guy belonged to Jesus, so Jesus took him home. If I belong to the Lord, the Lord, listen, if I belong to the Lord, the Lord decides when I go home, not me. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says it's appointed on a man once to die, yes? And then the judgment. We don't make the appointment. God numbers our days. God knows how long I'm going to live. And so if Hebrews says it's appointed on a man once to die and then the judgment, I don't make the appointment. My hope is in God, that he keeps his promises, that he'll always be with me. He never promised to fix everything, but he promised to always be with me. Now watch. This actually started sort of in Brazil when we were on our trip. They, dealt with a, they deal with a lot of suicide in Brazil, the high school kids down there. And I've talked, I've sat across the table from high schoolers and, and adults who are just like, Dan, I just, I can't get suicide off the table. I can't get rid of it. It's just a thought. And I just know I've tried it once. I'm going to try it again. And I was sitting one day in a coffee shop and God laid this on my heart, talking to, talking to a young student about suicide, trying to get this person to realize this is, and this person, you guys, loves God. I know they do. I, I've raised this kid up in youth group. I know this kid. And I sat there and I talked to this person. I'm like, you got to get this off the table. And God laid this on my heart. So bear with me while I unfold this for just unpack this for a sec, for a second. We're not supposed to murder. I don't belong to myself. People in the Bible who are examples of suicide were not walking well with God. The ones that asked God to take their life didn't do it. God didn't honor that. And then I look at this and I thought about this. And if God knows the number of my days, it's appointed on a man wants to die and then the judgment. I had this thought that God laid on my heart. Let's just say, for instance, that I get in a place where I can't take it anymore. And I end my life. And I end up in heaven. And I can hear God walking down the hallway of heaven come in my direction. And he stops. And he looks at me and he goes, why are you here? I didn't call you home. Why are you here, Dan? I'm going to have to answer that question this way. I put my hope in death. instead of in Christ. I don't want to have that conversation with God. Do you? When you talk to people who are believers and they're thinking about suicide, you've got to run through this with them. You've got to let them know that this is not what God wants for them. Jesus Christ did not come and die on a cross that I would reach out and take my own life when it's not mine to take. <clears throat> and I don't want to have God in heaven look at me and go, why are you here? I didn't call you home. And again, I'm going to have to answer that question one of two ways. I put my hope in death. Because I really believe that's when people get to suicide, they've lost all hope because they have forgotten that Christ is there with them. They have forgotten that God keeps his promises with them. And they've lost all hope and they put their hope in death. People, you keep your hope in Christ. No matter what happens to you, you keep your hope in Christ. When God's ready for you to come home, he'll call you home. Until he does, we keep walking through the trials and the tribulations on this side of heaven. Why? Because like Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome. Now I want to close this off with this thought and then we're going to step off into communion in just a minute. There's a story in the Bible that I taught to the kids here a while back that really struck me. 
Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 are in prison. Most of you know this story. They, have, they were where God wanted them to be. They were beaten because of something. They, they were just sharing their faith. They were beaten and stuffed in a prison. And Acts chapter 16, verse 25 says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. Listen to me. At midnight, when you're in the chains and thrown in the dungeon of life, I want you to know singing hymns and singing songs and praying will release you from your chains. It says right there, that's exactly what they did, and they were released from their chains. Suddenly then a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison and were shaken, and at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains were loosed. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had all escaped. That would have been a death sentence for this Roman soldier. He had done something, he'd let something happen in his life, and he was going to kill himself because of it. There is nothing you can do in your life or allow to happen in your life that would be worth you taking your own life. That's where the grace of God and the mercy of God comes into play. And then it goes on to say, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the guy didn't take his life. Look around the room. Look around the room. See all of us here? Don't harm yourself. We're all still here. If you need something, you reach out to a friend or a pastor, and we will remind you of one thing. There's hope if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. There's hope, you guys. And when you're in the dungeons and the throes of life, you turn your eyes to Jesus by, like David says, why so discouraged? Why so despondent? Why so much despair? But yet I will praise him. Because when we get ourselves in that spot, we got to turn and we got to see the cross, see the empty tomb, and see the hope in God keeping his promises. I hope this morning that this helps you guys a little bit with this idea of if a Christian takes their life, where do they go? And I believe if you go back and you learn how to study the Bible and you look at the things the Bible does tell us, we can hang a hat, our, our hat on a peg of this. God does not want you to do that. Jesus Christ did not come and die on a cross, so that would be your experience on this side of heaven. When you get yourself so self-absorbed and you get in those moments of despair and you don't know what to do, you reach out. You sing songs. You pray. You reach out to another brother or sister in Christ, and you turn your eyes back on heaven, and that will get you through that moment to the next day, and we'll keep walking. Amen? And we will keep walking in the biblical hope that God provides us, that God makes promises and he keeps promises. And that promise is that he loves you, his grace and mercy is real, and there's hope, not in my circumstance, but in a person. Let's pray and then we'll do communion. Father in heaven, you're good. Grateful for the time, Lord, this morning. And I pray in the name of Jesus that what you laid on my heart is helpful for all those that might be listening this morning. As I prayed this morning, Lord, you know my heart. You know I want you to take every word that comes out of my mouth and you tweak and perfect it for those that are listening. Meet each one of us, Lord, including me. Meet each one of us where we need met. Help each one of us as we need help. And speak to each one of us, Lord, as we need spoken to in our hearts. That we can have hope going into this next year. That we can have hope in Christ. Not in our circumstance, not in our situations. And that we would know it is appointed on a man once to die. And then the judgment. And Lord, we don't get to make the appointment. Help us to come alongside other people in our community that might be struggling. 
Help us to let them know, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. Help us to be faithful to you. And in the darkest and the most despairing times of our life, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, we love you. And sitting in this sanctuary, I know this may not even be a thing for us today, but we don't know what the future holds. We don't know the trials and the tribulations that we're going to suffer through on this side of heaven. But again, I might not know what's going to happen, but I know who I follow, and you're good. So would you do what you've told us in your scripture? Tell us, Lord, not to be afraid. Do not be despaired, for I am your God, and I will hold you with my righteous right hand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.